Levi. Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's just a tremendous privilege to be here. Um, so thank you to Levi, and thank you to uh, you guys for being patient with uh, a student who's, uh, you know, only so smart. Um, in 1981, there was a man named Carl McCunn. He was a photographer, and he hired a bush pilot to fly him up to the far reaches of Alaska to an extremely remote, unnamed lake in northern Alaska. And his intention was to stay for six months, to live beside this lake, and to photograph nature. Um, so he packed very well. He packed 500 rolls of film, three guns, 1,400 pounds of food, all his camping supplies, loaded it onto this plane, had the bush pilot fly him north and drop him off. He kept a diary during his uh, six-month stay, which mostly detailed nature and some of the photographs he had taken. And then in August, when his six months was at an end, he uh, wrote this in his diary. I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure. I'll soon find out. See, Carl McCunn had organized his uh, trip into the wilderness. He had carefully planned, uh, gotten all his food together. He had got everything he needed for six months, but he had never organized a way to get back home. He hired a bush pilot to go and to drop him off, but he didn't hire a bush pilot to pick him up and take him home again. And he told all his friends and family that if everything was going well, that he would stay for longer. He was so excited to go on his trip that he hadn't thought about coming back. So he waited and he waited and no one came to his rescue and eventually he ran out of food. And uh, in the ninth month of his trip, he died in his tent in the wilderness. So caught up in planning the trip itself that he hadn't thought about what happens when the trip is over. And sometimes we live life the same way we're so preoccupied with what happens here and now, so excited for this part of the trip, we don't think about what happens when it's all over. But what Psalm 90 is going to call us to consider is the fact that the trip ends, that life has a time limit. It's a psalm that it's basically just going to say, listen, life is short, God is eternal, so how are you going to live your life? So if you have your Bible, Psalm 90, we're going to read the, the first two verses, and we'll start there. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the only psalm written by Moses, and he begins by calling God a dwelling place, um, which is very uh, apropos for Moses. Keep in mind that the Israelites are transient in the desert for 40 years after they've left Egypt. They're living in tents. Um, God promised a land to Abraham. He promised that someday Abraham was going to have a land, and Abraham lived as a nomad his entire life. He moved around, and Abraham's children did the same thing. They moved around. They lived in tents. It's been 500 years since God promised that Abraham was going to have a land. 500 years that the Israelites have been moving around, living in tents. And now here's Moses still living in a tent, still no land, still no dwelling place. And he's saying that God has been their dwelling place through every generation. Abraham received this promise and his children were born. 
And then Abraham grew old and he died. And his children had children, and then they grew old and died. And those children had children, and then they grew old and died. And through generation after generation, uh, coming and going, the one consistency through it all is that God has been present. From age to age, decade to decade, generation to generation, God is continually present and providing. Whether the Israelites are in Ur or down in Egypt or they're wandering through the desert, God is the dwelling place that they lack. And then the other thing that we learn about God from these two verses is that God is eternal. Time and space had a beginning, but God did not have a beginning. The mountains had a beginning, but God did not have a beginning. He exists from everlasting to everlasting, from eternity to eternity. God has been, God always will be. The mountains are very, very old. The mountains are three days older than Adam was, but God is far, far older still. My great-great-grandparents came to Canada from Ireland uh, during the potato famine, end of the 1800s. They lived their lives, and then they died. And then my great-grandparents lived their happy little lives in Canada, lived to nice, ripe old ages, and then they died. And then my grandparents came, and they lived their entire lives, and then they died. And you can back up generation to generation, parents and grandparents and great-grandparents as far as you want, all the way back to the beginning of humanity. Two things are consistent through it all. One is that men live and die. And the other is that God remains. He's always been here. He will always be present. He is everlasting. Let's turn to verse 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. So first we see that God is eternal. And then in these verses, we see that man is temporary. Verse 3 says we return to dust. We're we're reminded of a reality that comes right from Genesis, that, that Adam and Eve are told the day they eat the fruit that they will surely die. And then they do eat the fruit, and so God turns and he curses the serpent, and then he curses the man, or sorry, curses the woman, and then finally he curses the man in that order. And the very, very last thing that God says to the man is is this. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so the psalmist pulls on this language. He reminds us of this reality in verse 3. And what he's doing is he's, he's contrasting what we just saw in the previous verses, this idea that God is eternal. He's contrasting this with the fact that man is very much not The everlasting nature of God is tremendous, and the life of a human is not. A thousand years in the sight of God are but as yesterday. That's what it says in verse 4. Size scales according to distance. An NBA player seems pretty big when you're standing next to him. A school bus feels pretty big when you're standing next to it. A ten-story apartment building seems tremendously large when you were standing next to it. But if you get on an elevator and you travel to the top of the CN Tower, 
which if you've never done, it's not worth the money, but <laughs> you can do it once if you want to. Get to the top of the CN Tower and you take your little knees knocking, shaky couple steps onto that big glass floor, look down. A 10-story apartment building is not very big at all. And an NBA player, if you can even see one, is just a speck, just an ant. Size scales according to distance. And Moses is, is the one who wrote the book of Genesis, as we understand it. And so perhaps here he's, he's thinking about or reminded of some of these extraordinarily long lives that he recorded in Genesis. Um, Seth lived to be 912. Enosh lived to be 905. Methuselah lived to be 969. A thousand years in God's sight are but as yesterday when it passes. Moses is saying that even when you consider these unbelievably long lives to God, who is eternal, these are just a, a speck. An NBA player from the CN Tower looks like an ant, and a thousand-year life from the eyes of God looks like a, a blip. The longest human life compared to eternity That's what it says, a watch in the night. Like something that happens while you're asleep. I've worked the night shift before. I don't know if any of you have. When you are on the night shift, it takes forever. It doesn't end. It's four in the morning, and you just want to go to sleep. But just on the wall, guarding your city. I'm borrowing their language and assuming it's the same as my job. When you're the one standing on the, on the wall during the night, it feels like forever. But when you're at home in your bed, the night shift just goes by like that. You close your eyes, you wake up in the morning. Whoever was on the night shift is home now. For us, life may feel very, very long. But for God, standing back in eternity, a thousand years are like a watch in the night. You wake up, it's just a brief moment that's over. God is eternal. But man is not. One of the reasons churches historically had, had graveyards surrounding their buildings was to remind worshipers of their mortality as they came into the house of God. We are being reminded of and being asked to wrestle with the reality of the shortness of our life. When I was a kid, we used to live behind us, and so we would go and walk through it as, as kids, as a family. And as a young guy walking through there, the average age, you know, on a gravestone was like 1910, probably. I mean, they, they bounce all over, you know what I mean. But just the average birth age, the most recent ones were like 1910. And then as I was a little older, an older kid, 1920. And then a few years later, as a teen, maybe, walked through the, through the cemetery, 1930. And now, if you, if you go for a walk and you wander through the cemetery, the average age is probably 1940. The years are creeping closer. And the reality is that, barring Christ's return, eventually, the year that I was born will be the average birth age in the cemetery. The years are creeping closer. And someday, 2022 will be just the average year that people who were born in who are now laid to rest. 
we are asked to, be, to consider and wrestle with the reality of the shortness of our life. God sweeps life away like a flood, like a dream, like grass, which is beautiful and green in the morning, but then when the hot August sun comes out, boom, it's brown by evening. That verse probably makes a lot more sense in the Middle East. I, I understand what he's saying. I think I've seen that like maybe twice in my life. The hot August sun is enough to turn the grass brown in a day. Life is short. And he's not even talking about tragedy here. He's not even talking about the possibility of your life being cut short. He's talking about the fact that even if you live to be 100, it is an inconsequential amount of time compared to eternity. And we are to wrestle with this. I used to work at a Bible college, and uh, I came to work one morning, and one of the Bible professors was there, and I, I just asked him, hey, what'd you do last night? And he said, oh, I built a casket for myself. He's like 30. <laughs> I was like, what's wrong, man? Like, what's going on? And he said, oh, I just, I, I, ha- I wanted to build um, a bookcase, and I decided I would make it in such a way that it could double as my casket. So... I built a bookcase, it's as wide as I am, it's as tall as I am, and you can, you can pull the shelves out and lay them flat and they'll serve as a lid. And uh, now I have a bookcase, it'll double as my casket. <laughs> and I was like, why? <laughs> right? And this is what he said to me, I kid you not. He said, with every swing of the hammer, I was forced to wrestle with my own mortality And now, every time I walk into my house, I have a reminder right inside the door that someday I am going to die. And I was like, Joel, you're insane. (laughs) But I think that this is is what Psalm 90 is calling us to do. To be this kind of people who, even as a young man, he just said, you know what? I'm just going to come to grips with this, and I'm going to live my life with a reminder present in my home that this is all going to come to an end. It's maybe a little too morbid for some of us, but this is what Psalm 90 is calling us to wrestle with. Consider the, the brevity of your own life. We're being called to live with this reminder of our own mortality. Live with a perspective that recognizes that your life is a blip compared to eternity. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reasons of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and and your wrath according to the fear of you? Death is the result of God's wrath for sin. Death is not a normal part of the life cycle. You've probably heard that said that it was, that mortality is just a natural part of life, but that's, that's not true. That comes from a a naturalistic worldview, from accepting evolution. Humans were not designed to die. Death came into the world as a punishment 
by a holy God for the disobedience of sin. Verse 8 says this, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We, we live not only with the reality of time passing through our fingers, but with the reality that in the brief time that we have, we have done things that we ought not to have done, and we have not done things that we ought to have done. Humans have to wrestle with both our mortality and our morality, which are both conditions that we generally tend to be in denial about. The reality of death ought to make people face the reality of their sin and the fact that shortly they will stand before a holy God, a perfect and just God. And if my most secret sins are in the light before him, then this is something that I need to reckon with. Nobody had a better understanding of this than Moses did. The Israelites came out of Egypt, and they walked through the desert, and they came to Canaan, and they got from Egypt to Canaan fairly quickly. It took 45 days to get to Sinai, and then Canaan was quite short after that. And when they got to Canaan, they sent 12 spies into the land, and the, the 12 spies went in, and they scouted this land that God had clearly promised to the Israelites, and then they came back to their camp, and 10 of the spies gave a very bad report. They basically said, listen, we know God promised us this land, but the people who live there are really big, and they have really big walls around really big cities, and we can never take them. And the people of Israel listened to the 10 spies. They believed what the spies said rather than believing what God had promised. And so God told Moses that he was going to judge the people. And for the next 40 years, with the exception of the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who gave a good report, for the next 40 years, every person that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. That was God's judgment on the people. Now, we estimate that it was just over 2 million people that came out of Egypt. We're told how many men there were. Um, and so we, we figure there are about 2 million people that came out of Egypt. So for the next 40 years, Moses watched 2 million people die, which averages to just under 60 a day. Now, there were some days, if you know uh, the story, where, you know, 15,000 people get struck down at once. It's a couple exceptions. But just as a rule, Moses spent 40 years watching people around him fall all the time, dying literally as a result of the judgment of God. And so here he, he writes these verses that death comes as a result of the judgment of God, and he writes things like this, All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Every life lost in the wilderness was a physical reminder of the wrath and judgment of a holy God. And the truth is, that we learn from reading Genesis is that this is still the case. Every death that happens is a reminder of the judgment and wrath of a holy God. I've heard people argue in, in the last few years that um, COVID has come into our world, our world as the judgment of God. And that may be true, it may not be. I don't think I'm one to say. You heard the same thing 20 years ago, 30 years ago with the AIDS epidemic. A lot of pastors would say that. This is a result of the judgment of God. Here's the reality. All death is a result of the judgment of God. Every life lost 
is a reminder that God judges sin. Death exists around us and serves to remind us that someday we are going to give an account before a holy God. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians I want to read to you, and I I think it really helps us remember this, sums this up well. 5.10, it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Death is the judgment of God that brings us into the judgment of God. Death is the, the doorway that we must pass through before we stand before God's great white throne and give an account for the deeds done in the body. It says this, the years of our our life are 70, even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and soon enough, whether we like it or not, people are going to be standing around, eating egg salad sandwiches, singing the hymn All Fly Away over us. A hymn that conveniently comes from these verses. This is the reality we have to wrestle with. So three uh, reminders from this psalm, all building on top of each other. The first is this, that God is eternal. That he is from everlasting to everlasting. The second is, we are not. We're going to die someday. And then the third reminder, building on top of those two, When we die, we face God's judgment. Let's read verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. God is eternal. We are not. And someday we're going to stand before him. So now the psalmist, now Moses, is going to close by basically answering the questions. In in light of this, how are we supposed to live? In light of these three things, what does that mean for us? And I think it's summed up really well in verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's really the heart of this psalm. That's really the, the thrust of what he's trying to say here. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Remind us of the brevity of our life that it may teach us to live accordingly. I, I opened this morning with a, a story of Carl McCunn, who, who was so excited for his trip, he carefully pr- planned every detail, but he never stopped to think about what happens when it's all over. Teach us to number our days that we may live with a heart of wisdom. Wise living is going to come from recognizing the shortness of your life and the length of eternity. In verse 13, it says this, Return, O Lord, how long? It is an interesting uh, question, return, O Lord, how long? It's the same verb that he used in verse 3. We read verse 3 earlier, you return man to dust, and say, return, O children of man. So in verse 3, what we had was, 
God talking about man returning. And now we have a man asking for God to return. It's the same verb, but, but the, the, the context is flipped around. And, and when we read verse 3, we, we talked about how mankind ate the fruit in the garden, and God cursed them. He cursed first the serpent, then the woman, then the man. The very last thing he said to the man was, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now Moses is asking God to return to man. This psalm has forced us to grapple with both our mortality and our morality. And that means dealing with the fact that we aren't good enough to make it to God on our own. God is a God of justice. God is a holy God. And this is a tremendous problem for all of us. It is a huge problem that someday you're going to stand in the light of his presence and be judged for the deeds done in your body. It's a huge problem for me that someday my secret sins will be brought to light in his presence. This is a huge issue because God is a just God. A just judge gives penalties that are worthy of their punishment. Worthy of the crime, sorry. The, the punishment is worthy of the crime. A just judge does not give a murderer 10 hours of community service. And likewise, he does not give someone life in prison for going 10 kilometers over the speed limit. The punishment has to fit the crime. This is a great big problem for you and for me because God is an eternal God. And his, his laws, which he has given, do not have a time limit on them. They are meant to last forever. So every time you have sinned in secret as he says, you have broken the eternal law of an eternal God. If God is a just judge, he must give a, a, a penalty that is worthy of this crime. Ten hours of community service isn't going to do it. Life in prison isn't going to do it. God, God's holiness, God's justice, demands a suitable punishment for your crime. And if our crimes are eternal, we, we are on the, the brink of facing eternal punishment. This is a tremendous problem for us. But God, in his goodness, because of his immeasurable love, sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. And God, in the person of Jesus, is an eternal person. He is a person of eternal worth and eternal length. And so Jesus Christ, one man, can die and can satisfy the punishment that is necessary for us. We deserve an eternal punishment, yet one eternal man has died so that we do not bear the punishment for our crimes, but they can be placed on somebody else. God, in Christ, has entered our rebellion, entered into our death, and borne the wrath of God, so that those of us who turn to Christ need not fear death. We are able to trust in the goodness, the sacrifice of somebody else. We are not able to make it to God, so God has come to us. Jesus Christ is the only hope for our salvation. So if you want assurance, what happens after you die, we, you simply must trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this is the call of this psalmist this morning. God, return to us. God, you have to come to man. You have to be the one who does something here. 
We are sinful. We're not able to get to you. We're just going to return to dust. We can't return to God. We're just going to return to dust. God, you have to come to man, and you have to do something on our behalf. You have to make us new. You have to make us right with you. You have to be the one who enables us to enter back into your presence. If you want assurance of where you go when you die, we must look to what God has done for us. We must look to Jesus Christ. God is eternal. We are mortal. Someday we will stand before him. I see uh, two ways that this affects our lives in the, uh, the final verses of the psalm here. The first is in verse 14. It says this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. If you want to live a life that is able to recognize and hold in view the brevity of you compared to eternity, live your life with the reality that God is enough. Seek satisfaction from God and not from this world. There's a really convicting verse in in 1 Timothy 6. It says this, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. If we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. Is that true of your life? I, I don't know if that's true of mine, if I'm honest. I don't know if I can read those words from Paul and, and say that I wholeheartedly believe them. If, I, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. I, I don't know. Sometimes I wish my cruise control in my car worked. You know, sometimes I wish I lived in a little bit of a nicer place. But he's speaking here of money, Paul is. He's not concerned about getting another car, or a new boat, new house, but just satisfied by the love of God. God is enough. Why? Why should we be satisfied with food and clothing? Why should we be content with this? Because you're only on life, you're only on this earth for this long. And then we spend all of eternity standing in the presence of God. I can spend my money on me, on driving a nice vehicle and wearing nice clothes, or, or I can spend my money on things that have eternal value. Spend my time and my money on, on seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. There was uh, an older lady in my church who passed away when I was uh, probably 16. She was in her 90s, and, and uh, she had been really supportive of, of missions all through her life. And um, I saw that just being an eye group in a small-town church. And um, when she died, she left a small inheritance. She didn't have much, um, but her husband had gone on. I never knew him. And then when she went on, she left a small bit of money to her kids, and they sold her apartment, and... Um, when I went to Bible college, this is 10 years ago now, 12 years ago, her, her daughter came to me, her daughter's probably 60, and said, uh, we're really excited that you're going to Bible college. We want to give you some money. Um, Mom's inheritance was left behind, and uh, rather than, than keeping it, what we've decided to do is to put it towards raising the next generation of pastors. So they gave me a fair chunk of money to go to Bible college, and uh, again, I was from a small church over the next 10 years. Every time someone from our youth group graduated and went to Bible college, they would do the same thing. And uh, 10 years went by, and then I went back to seminary, and they approached me again. Hey, we heard you're going into seminary. It's pretty much at the end of mom's inheritance, but you can have the last chunk of change that we had. It's going to go towards your schooling. It wasn't much, 
wasn't much money that she had left behind, but what she had, they put entirely towards raising the next generation of pastors. So here's a lady who lived her whole life, very, very generously giving to missions, and so she died with not much to leave behind, but what little she had then was put towards, about 12 of us, going towards Bible college, heading into missions, to satisfy us in the morning, and be glad all our days. I think of her when I think of what it looks like to be totally satisfied with what God has given you. It's not living, not living your life to, to gain a bigger bank account. And then her kids, not taking that money and using it to upgrade their own lives, totally satisfied with what we have, giving entirely to the Lord. So this is the first thing, to be satisfied. And then the, the second thing uh, comes from verse 16. It says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So if, if God is eternal and man is not, how are we supposed to live? Number one, completely satisfied in the Lord. And number two, I want to be a part of what God is doing. I want to see God work. That's what he's saying. If life is short, but eternity is long, then what life you have, spend it on things that matter. I want to be a part of discipling individuals, of helping one person at a time understand the gospel of Jesus, grow in their knowledge of Jesus, seeing hearts changed by the Holy Spirit. I want to be a part of seeing the gospel transform a city. You want to be a part of seeing the, the, the city of Aurelia become a hub for the gospel? God is able to do a work here. You want to be a part of it. If life is short and eternity is long, what better thing is there to be a part of? I want to be a part of seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. Don't spend your life making yourself comfortable, having an impact on a, on a world that's soon going to pass away. If life is short and eternity is long, then the only way human life is going to have value is if we ally ourselves with an eternal God. Live for his purposes, not your own. I want to be allied with the work of an eternal God who does not pass away. God is eternal. We are not. Someday we're going to be judged by him. So how then should we live? Totally satisfied by the love of Christ. Allying ourselves with the work of God. This is what the psalm teaches us. I'd like to, to close this morning by um, reading... Uh, just some selected verses from a poem by C.T. Studd. It says this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still, small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, 
each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I will be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction that it brings. I pray, God, that we would be people who live in light of eternity, people who are reminded of the brevity of life and the length of you, O God. May we be people who are intrinsically allied with your work. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it it pierces our hearts and reminds us of truth. We pray, God, that we would be people who live by those truths as we leave this place. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.